This is part two of three from our summer United States Supreme Court wrap-up live stream that took place on July 20th, presented by this podcast in the Warren B. Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service. It featured Dean Megan Carpenter and Professors John Gravy, Lucy Hodder, Buzz Sher, and Mike McCann. The video version is available at facebook.com slash unhlaw. This episode features Professor Hodder diving into California v. Texas, which revolves around the Affordable Care Act, and Professor Schur discussing the Fourth Amendment-centered cases Coniglia v. Strom and Lang v. California. This is the Legal Impact, the weekly podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. No accepting applications for JED, graduate programs, and online professional certificates. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or hosts and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. To talk about California v. Texas, a case involving the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, something Lucy probably hates the reference to, but we're joined by uh, Lucy Hodder, Professor of Law and Director of the Health and Policy Program at UNH Franklin Pierce, as well as at the Institute for Health Policy and Practice. Welcome, Lucy. Thanks so much, um, AJ, and great to be with you all. I guess we have, um, you know, schools and speech and sports and healthcare so far on the docket. What could be more fun? <laughs> so, how, how did this end up being a case between two different states? That, that's fascinating as a non-lawyer to hear. Yes, well, it's so interesting. Um, it's been an ongoing issue, obviously, uh, challenges to the Affordable Care Act from the minute it was passed. These challenges have been brought, hundreds of them, and it's now been to the Supreme Court three different times. So this particular case was brought by about 17 states and then two plaintiffs. Um, And just to give you a little bit of the background dynamic, I think we all know this now, you know, the original case and the Sibelius there was a challenge basically saying, hey, you can't make us get health coverage. And by the way, if we don't get it, you can't penalize us. That's unconstitutional. Um, We all know the Affordable Care Act has many additional provisions, the Medicaid um, coverage provisions for expanded Medicaid, you know, all kinds of changes to the Indian health system, um, just massive changes to our public health system, um, et cetera. So the focus has always been on this requirement. Can you make us get insurance? Um, and not even everyone is has to get insurance, but can you make us? And if we don't, can you penalize us? And in the NFIB case, um, Chief, Chief Justice Roberts pulled together uh, ultimately a majority that said, yes, it's the penalty is a legitimate tax. Um, and that on that basis, we're going to find this constitutional. They didn't uphold the requirement that states expand Medicaid, but interestingly, people don't focus on that as much. And that's led to real discrepancies across the country as to who, what states cover people uh, with Medicaid expansion and what states don't. So then fast forward, there was another case, King v. Burwell, which was really um, hanging on some language about access to subsidies. And then you have this case, which keeps percolating up. And all of a sudden, after um, the, you know, what everyone thought was the final conclusion that there's constitutional authority to uh, roll out this scheme where you need to get insurance and there are various ways to do so. And if you don't, you might get a penalty. Um, Congress in 2017 eliminated the penalty. So there was this aha and Texas said, aha, now the basis for uh, penalizing people is no longer a tax, and therefore the whole statute must be unconstitutional. And in fact, um, the the uh, uh, 
lower court said, yeah, it's unconstitutional. And by the way, the whole act is out of here. Um, so the constant theme politically, that keeps the constant out. theme. And if you read all the amicus briefs and everything, that's where, you know, there are three issues. Do the plaintiffs have standing to even make their argument? Is their argument valid? Is the statute unconstitutional or the provision unconstitutional? And then what's the remedy? Do you throw the whole statute out or can you sever that that um, injurious provision. Um, well, in the latest case, in the Texas case, they were now arguing, hey, um, you, uh, we, we don't have a penalty, but we still have to get insurance and your ability to make us get insurance is unconstitutional. And the court said, you know what? Uh, we're gonna kick this out on standing. There's just not an injury here. Um, and so the court sort of put this box around it that says, if you are penalized for not getting insurance, it's a legitimate constitutional tax. We know that already. But if you're not being penalized for failing to get insurance, there's no injury. Um, and the states tried to argue all these sort of um, distant injuries. Like the states tried to say, hey, you know, if people aren't obligated to get insurance, they're going to be more folks on Medicaid and that burdens us and, you know, had various arguments about injury, none of which the court bought into. So they really just didn't give the plaintiffs their full day in court. Um, the interesting thing is uh, Justice Roberts, who again wrote the opinion, you know, didn't come out with a resounding, you know, affirmation of the Affordable Care Act, yet everybody is interpreting this decision as sort of closing the door to future challenge. Um, you know, Alito wrote a dissent and it was joined by um, Justice Gorsuch and uh, really just hammered the ACA um, and, and basically said, you know, the Congress didn't have the power to pass it, which you know, I think we could spend a lot of time quibbling with the basis for the enumerated powers that were raised um, in other cases were, you know, um, uh, uh, just necessary and proper, um, you know, also interstate commerce, you know, and then this tax provision. Um, so I think we could have a robust argument about what other bases of the enumerated powers could have authorized the Affordable Care Act, especially if, as we've seen what kind of uh, federal authority comes to play around the regulation of healthcare in general through the pandemic. So long-winded answer, AJ, to your question, but uh, that's basically what happened. We're hopefully done Supreme Court opinions on the ACA. Yeah. Were you surprised by the ideological makeup of the court with how they ended up ruling on this case? So I have to say, uh, not really. I mean, it, 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 it was this is just one of those super duper statutes, which, um, you know, I think the dissenters were able to say what they said because they were dissenting. <laughs> and the court, there's no way Chief Justice Roberts was going to come up with an opinion that didn't really look like it was closing the door. And if standing is where they go, you know, I think probably John Graby and other constitutional scholars can sort of dig into where they came out on standing. Um, you know, it was a pretty broad sweep uh, um, alleging no injury um, and not even getting their day in court. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that uh, a lot part of the opinion plays out over time. Um, you know, I will say there's sort of two consequences to any Supreme Court decision. One is sort of the jurisprudence that comes from it. Um, but the other is the impact it has on the policy. 
And, you know, we at the, the um, health law and policy programs at the law school with the Institute try and keep one step ahead of the policy developments. And we, we did that again this summer with our event on healthcare sustainability, cost and access and what's going on. And we've really focused on this. Um, and all of a sudden, now that the ACA and, and health insurance coverage is sort of out of the limelight in, in, from being argued, where now everyone is addressing the fact that our health insurance is too expensive, our health costs are too expensive, um, there's very little oversight of our you know, health delivery system. So you're really going to see that play out now that we've you know, sort of cleared some of the other issues out of the way. There's some going to be some real focus on actually our delivery system. Now, I'd also say that COVID has really raised up this sort of question that was underlying all aspects of the court's decision. And again, I'm going to defer to Professor Graby on a lot of this, but it's really a question of the ping pong between federal uh, authority and states' rights um, or state authority or an individual's ability to challenge. And you're constantly seeing with healthcare it back and forth, right? Um, and what, what area of the regulation do the, does the federal government sort of um, able to carry the water on? And how about states? Um, we just had in New Hampshire um, just now a, an edict from the Department of um, uh, uh, Education saying um, school districts and private schools cannot require uh, immunization against COVID or even any of the other requirements that might be associated with it, like, like masks. So, you know, you're seeing down at very local levels, sort of power grabs around what can or can't be done in the name of healthcare. Um, uh, so very interesting the way the different dynamics amongst um, the different regulatory authorities play out in healthcare. We just haven't figured out who's responsible for mining the store. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the the issue of uh, federalism when it comes to to payers and uh, who's Medicare and su such is definitely something that's going to be ongoing. And uh, but I'd imagine this is a huge burden to hopefully be able to move past here, especially with the Democrat controlled Congress and the executive branch uh, that the ACA for now is going to be staying as is. So you can focus on other uh, topics. Uh, I mean, do you do you predict a lot of COVID-19 related uh, uh, lawsuits to be coming through over the next couple of years? A lot of these, especially for the Supreme Court, it takes years for some of these. Like it took eight years for Alston, which we discussed. I mean, do you predict this is going to be years worth of cases on the health policy side? So, you know, I think there's going to be a lot more battling sort of politically and at the local level uh, around authorities. Um, you know, I do think some of the states that just don't like the ACA and don't like, you know, being uh, being burdened with any extra costs are going to continue to battle the federal government and CMS over um, resources and what they do or don't need to do in terms of coverage and support for the most vulnerable populations, um, which has been sort of exposed quite dramatically during COVID. So I see that kind of battle continuing and maybe getting into the court. I also think there's going to be a lot of local constitutional battles just around, you know, vaccination, um, reproductive health, as we've seen, that's going to be a big area going forward if we're looking at the courts. Um, and, you know, the, the, the personal rights are, are going to percolate up again um, post-COVID as to what can be done in the name of public health 
and, and what can't, it's sadly become quite political. Um, we also have all of the um, very interesting dynamic going on in the life sciences, you know, prescription drug um, uh, world with some of what the Biden administration's doing uh, to try and relieve some of the prices, um, both in medical devices, as well as uh, prescription drugs, which I think industry is not, not too pleased about, but um, that's gonna continue to be a big story um, in healthcare and may get to the courts. Thanks so much for joining me, Lucy. Thank you. All right, next up, we have Professor of Law and Chair of the International Criminal Law and Justice Program, Buzz Schur, talk about a couple different cases. Welcome, Buzz. Pleasure to be here. All right, let's start off with Coniglia v. Strom, an interesting case, to say the least, that appears, if you just look at it on the surface, it looks like a Second Amendment case, but it, it's a Fourth Amendment case. So what happened with Edward Coniglia to start this chain of events? So he and his uh, spouse have uh, a domestic uh, argument uh, and his wife decides, uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to stay here tonight. And she goes to a hotel, but she's uh, concerned for him uh, and tries to get in touch with him, see if he's OK and 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 can't get in touch with him by phone. So she calls the police and basically says what is known in the trade, so to speak, as a wellness check. Uh, could you go just check, see if he's okay? I'm a, I'm a little bit worried about him. So the police go there and they uh, they find, they talk to him and he's fine. Uh, and they take him into custody for a mental health evaluation. Um, and then they leave and they take him to wherever it was he was going to get the evaluation. Uh, and they leave. And then they come back later and they search the home for guns. Uh, nobody's at the home at that time, uh, but they, they use what is known uh, as an exception to the warrant requirement, the community caretaking exception to the warrant requirement, which is a relatively new development. It came into being back in 1973 uh, in a case called, uh, I think it's Katie versus Dombrowski. Um, and it basically says, uh, loosely, when somebody, when the police have concern about somebody's, uh, the risk of harm, to, uh, that a person may harm themselves or others, uh, they, in the, in the Katie case, they can enter a car. And so uh, in terms of jurisprudence, the question for the court was, can you apply the community caretaking exception to have, allow the police to enter homes as an exception to the warrant requirement? They had no warrant to go into the home. Um, and the court, perhaps a bit surprisingly, at least in the political sense, nine to nothing said, nope, can't do that. The community caretaking exception <clears throat> allows us to go into cars but it doesn't allow you to go into homes. It's a re re relatively definitive statement on the part of the court. Uh, and, um, and it was a unanimous decision. And that's especially surprising for, for from the political pol politics side of the house is people, this is unanimous. All the justices on the left and right side of the aisle all went say, no, this is a Fourth Amendment issue. You cannot do that. Yeah, it is surprising. And that at another level, it's it's interesting and not that surprising in that there has always, there has been a theme for many years on the court, most uh, court conservatives, most often led by the now deceased Anton Scalia, 
of kind of a libertarian sense of privacy. Uh, Scalia was relatively well known for that in some uh, very interesting uh, opinions, majority opinions and dissents. And, and some of the question was uh, upon Scalia's death, you know, whether that strain in Fourth Amendment, that libertarian privacy strain in Fourth Amendment opinions was going to stay alive. Uh, in, and interestingly, was it going to stay alive in particular with Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who was a clerk for Scalia, and Scalia in many ways was her mentor. Uh, and many were curious. I was certainly curious whether whether she was going to be channeling Scalia um, or not. But uh, apparently, uh, at least in this sense, they really narrowed down the community caretaking exception. Community caretaking exception has been applied broadly in a lot of different ways. And this is a not insignificant narrowing of, of the exception. Uh, yeah, a common, th commonly known uh, term is red flag laws uh, that we well, actually talked about in a previous episode. Yeah, that's a, uh, it's a, uh, I wouldn't say it's a derivative of the community caretaking exception, but the, particularly in Coniglia, you know, what the police did is the kind of thing that they could do in some states under, if they had applied to a court, uh, they could do in some states under those states red flags laws. Uh, uh, there's a lot of controversy over red flag laws in that uh, how much due process does the person whose guns are being taken away, how much are they entitled to? You know, some, uh, including myself, uh, believe that uh, since you're taking away at least temporarily a, sec, a, a constitutional right, the Second Amendment, they're entitled to a, a, a solid dose of due process, a hearing, representation by counsel, ability to challenge the witnesses. Uh, but at, so this is different than red flags law, laws because those are statutory, but this is a constitutional decision. Uh, you can't do an end around around the due process requirements, whatever they are of red flag laws, by just using the community caretaking exception, because that only applies to cars. So how much of this decision do you feel like was based around where it took place? I mean, if this took place somewhere else, it'd be entirely different. Uh, it would be different. Uh, the, you know, the, the court has always honored the sanctity of the home as a privacy realm that the police have to have a lot of justification to go in there. And when the police don't have to have that justification screened ahead of time by the warrant process, that is laying out their justification in front of a, a neutral detached magistrate to see if the magistrate also agrees that they have enough justification known as probable cause. When you dispense with that, uh, you, uh, it's going to be very hard under this court's rulings to get into the home. And, you know, Lang versus California, the other case we're going to talk about is another example of that. Yeah, let's move on to Lang v. California, which is another Fourth Amendment focused case that will move from guns to hot pursuits. <laughs> Can you talk a bit about this case? Guns to cars, right? Yes. Um, two quintessentially American uh, items. Um, so, uh, Lang is, you know, I, I don't recall how old Lang was, but he's driving down the road with loud music and honking his horn a lot. And this is in California. And in California, 
it's a misdemeanor to make too much noise that way. So the police start following him, put their lights on to stop him. He doesn't stop until he drives into his driveway and then into his garage. Then the police come up behind him and they enter the garage and he appears to be quite intoxicated. They arrest him for a DWI, et cetera. So basically they, in hot pursuit of somebody who was they believed was committing a misdemeanor, they entered what was the functional equivalent of his home, his garage. Uh, and the issue in this case was, uh, in terms of the uh, existing jurisprudence, the Supreme Court has been pretty clear that you can use the hot pursuit exception, which is a subset of the exigent circumstances exception to the warrant requirement under the Fourth Amendment. You can use, if you're pursuing in hot pursuit of somebody who you believe has committed a felony, who have you probable cause to believe has committed a felony, there's a lot more leeway in getting inside that person's home. Uh, it had been an open question. They had declined to be very specific in a prior case whether when you were in hot pursuit of somebody who had committed a misdemeanor, whether you could enter their home. And this case uh, narrowed down the circumstances. Uh, the government was asking, the state of California was asking that uh, the court say, whenever you're in hot pursuit of a person who you have probable cause to believe has committed a misdemeanor, you can enter their home be it their garage or the actual home. And the court rejected that per se rule. They said, no, we're not gonna do that. We are gonna say that in many cases, if there's a significant risk of uh, destruction of evidence or harm to others, uh, we may well in that set of circumstances allow hot pursuit into the home of somebody uh, we think is committed to misdemeanor, but we're gonna do that on a case by case basis. We're not going to have a per se rule that when you're in hot pursuit of a, mis a per potential misdemeanor, you can go in their home. I'm assuming so, a fel felony or something like that would be an entirely different situation. Very much so. Um, so again, uh, a nine to nothing ruling effectively. There are a good number of concurring opinions, but the outcome was a nine to nothing outcome. Uh, interestingly, Justice Kagan uh, wrote the opinion uh, and uh, what I found interesting is that, in part, she relied on uh, case law from 1791, uh, when the <laughs> Fourth Amendment was going into effect. It was a very much a Scalia-like originalist way of taking on the problem. My guess is, and only a guess, semi-educated guess is, she used that approach to draw in the conservatives on the court saying, hey, this case comes out even under the, the originalist way of thinking about this case, it still comes out uh, as uh, you can't, there's no per se rule in hot pursuit of misdemeanors. Yeah, it's kind of a different way of looking at the court. We always talk about Chief Justice Roberts wanting to side, making a decision when the court split that uh, kind of upholds the importance of the court as something which people sure. on the right tend to give him a lot of grief over. But it, it goes all the way around. I mean, the, all these justices have to work together on various opinions, and it's important that they work together to a certain extent. 
Very much so. Um, The other thing I would note is it's going to be interesting going forward as the court uh, deals with, you know, there's always Fourth Amendment cases coming up in front of them. And, you know, there's always going to be increasingly, in fact, privacy cases involving the Fourth Amendment uh, and the scope of what the police can do and the use of Fourth Amendment warrant exceptions. Uh, And this is an interesting marker that the court has laid down in these two cases that, you know, we, we, st- we still take privacy very seriously in a world where privacy is under stress in so many different ways. Of course, we in New Hampshire have a whole different approach because we have a information privacy constitutional amendment. So who I, wrote that? I, I, I skips, uh, slips my mind who wrote that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Buzz. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.